HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This program is brought to you by Juul, sous vide by Chef Steps. Juul takes the guesswork out of cooking. Learn more at chefsteps.com slash J-O-U-L-E. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. This is Meant to be Eaten on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Coralie. And so today we'll be shaking things up a little bit in form and content. I'm excited to be joined by two guests today, and we'll be talking about the intersection of food and art, giving me, I was telling Susie here, the um, selfish joy of putting my art history degree to use. Um, So yes, in the studio today with me is Susie Spence, who is an artist, uh, curator, and creator of the online archive for Woman House. And by phone, joining us from Toronto is Irina Milahake, who is the assistant professor of museum studies at the Faculty of Information and a member of the Culinaria Research Center at University of Toronto Scarborough. Hi, both of you. <laughs> Hi. Hello. So um, a few weeks ago, in an episode titled Americana, Dr. Cope and I discussed the influence of female cookbook authors on writing and directing culinary history. And today we'll be talking about women working with and near art and how they too have shaped our understanding of the relationship between women and kitchen. And so let's start with where you're both from and how there's, that has um, brought you to where you are today. So let's start with you, Irina, since you're the furthest from us. Uh, you mean where I am from in my research? Uh, sure, or? I was even talking about culturally and regionally, but research too. Sure, I can definitely talk culturally. So I'm originally from Romania, and I've experienced Romania in the transition from communism to whatever political system you have in there right now. So I was very much interested in uh, absence of food and how food uh, starts to become a very important material product in uh, people's lives uh, during a democratic, uh, democratic system. So I guess I've always been interested in food history, memory, uh, performance. And uh, most recently, I've been primarily interested in how uh, dif- the different ways in which people consume food in, uh, in museums, historically and contemporarily. Great. And you, Susie? 
Yeah, so um, I grew up mostly in Maine, but um, I was a transplant from New York City. My parents moved there in the 70s. And uh, my food background is kind of um, around my mother's interest. It's very direct. Um, she you know, spent a lot of time cooking and was interested in gourmet food and in natural food. And my grandfather had a French restaurant when I was growing up and was, uh, was definitely a Francophile. So I'm interested to hear what Irina has to say about this. <laughs> uh, um, and then as a curator in 2009, I worked on an exhibition in Brooklyn that was an homage to Woman House. And at that time, I built a website for images and videos from that project that really had no place to live online and were inaccessible for the most part. And so through the curation of the show in 2009 and the building of womanhouse.net for public use, um, I'm here to talk about Woman House. Great. So let's start um, with what you mentioned about your mother and um, your dad being a Francophile. Irina, can you talk about how your writing on the recipes um, as culinary communication kind of talks to maybe Susie's background in food? Yeah, so um, so in uh, in the article that Coral, that you, that you mentioned, I look at um, some culinary projects that were initiated by women's committees in art museum and my focus is primarily in Toronto but you can tell similar stories about many other museums uh, in uh, in North America Uh, so in the 1960s these women's committees trying to fundraise for the museum but also trying to increase the the social capital and the community communities for the museum they organized a series of uh, culinary demonstrations where they invited very famous chefs from the United States and London to perform for Canadian audiences. And uh, two of these chefs were James Baird and uh, Diane Lucas. And uh, most of the the recipes that they actually cook in Toronto, which are also published in a series of cookbooks, are published under the the ideology of uh, gourmet. And uh, as we, as many of us know, gourmet has a very, mu- has a very, uh, has a connection with uh, French culinary history, uh, both in terms of the history of the world, but also in terms of the different uh, elements that make up gourmet. So uh, when I started looking at these cookbooks, I expected actually to see a much more close representation of French cuisine and French culinary strategies. But what I found was actually uh, uh, a process of Canadianizing these uh, these specific recipes, but definitely the the way in which these uh, if culinary events were known to Canadians were through the gourmet uh, discourse. I think it's really interesting that you use the word perform um, in saying that mm-hmm. James Beard performed cooking instead of uh, cooked for the people. Could mm-hmm. you talk mm-hmm. a bit about Woman House, Susie, and how? Um, yeah, just the background of it and how that also housed performances. Sure. So Woman House was created in 1972 uh, through CalArts, which had a feminist art program at the time that was run by Judy Chicago and Miriam Shapiro. There were uh, about 25 artists involved in total. Most of them were young women who were getting their degrees. And they had uh, a studio at the moment because CalArts 
had experienced an earthquake and they're actually the studios were in disrepair and so um, they had this idea the women did to take over a house that was falling down in Los Angeles and to work on it for two months using their hands like to do electrical wiring plumbing and um, to rebuild it in a certain way but also to use each room as a way of addressing uh, women's experience and to create a new language uh, for for art at the time which really had hadn't really uh, used those kinds of materials uh, yet and hadn't taken them seriously. So uh, each room was turned into an artwork uh, according to an individual's experience in that room or a collection of women who worked together. For example, in the dining room and in the kitchen, those were both made by several women together. So I'm answering your question, right? In yeah, terms yeah. Of, um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Could you even actually give a few examples of the various rooms? Um, sure. I know the, well, actually the one that I was, I was telling Susie this, that um, in college, there was only one PowerPoint on this art piece and there was only one photo and it was just the eggs to breast. So I feel like that's the one that everyone knows about, but there's so much more to it. Could you just talk a bit about other rooms? Sure. Um, yeah, people do know that room. That's incredible because it was uh, the kitchen was painted entirely pink. All of the you know the the stove and the the refrigerator, and then the the there were these breasts that were all over the walls that slowly ascended to the top and became the form of fried eggs. And I guess that you could even walk up and touch the breasts if you wanted to, and they were kind of like squishy (laughs) so yeah and and that piece came from um what happened a lot during the process of making woman house which was uh consciousness raising sessions so the women would go into the kitchen for example and talk together about their direct experiences and associations with the kitchen uh some people thought that it was a very nurturing place you know, while others felt that it was a place that the knives were kept and that the stove was hot and dangerous and maybe they fought with their mother in the kitchen and this kind of thing. Um, And, you know, another example of a room in the house that was not food-related was the menstruation bathroom that Judy Chicago, um, you know, made white, but then there was a garbage can full of bloody tampons that kind of, like, exploding out of the, the garbage can. Yeah, so um, we're, this episode's kind of just going to be all over the place. Yeah. I'm realizing to the listeners it's a little crazy. But, um, Irina, then can you talk about um, just the format of these annual Art of Cooking events? And, yeah, let's, let's talk about the logistics of these before we go into your analysis of each. Yeah, I can talk about that. And actually, if I can help you connect. The <laughs> yes, the please. Uh, I invite it. Definitely. Yeah, uh, what... Uh, it was interesting uh, that Susie specifically talked about the kitchen because what happens with uh, with the art, uh, art gallery of Ontario where these women were practicing their culinary work is that they actually build new kitchen spaces and they actually kind of force the curators and all the other museum professionals to make, make space for them through the installation of kitchens. And there's uh, interesting, there's entire folders that talk about the, the research that these women did in order to have the best types of stoves, the best types of materials. So kitchens, I think, are very important spaces to problematize domesticity and domestic, uh, and domestic labors. So it's quite interesting to see how flexible the museological space 
was through the work of these uh, of these women. And to uh, briefly come back to your question about logistics, so these events were uh, organized by a specific committee that was part of the women's committees. And uh, the events would not take place in the museum because the museum didn't have the capacity for a, for a culinary demonstration, not having a, a demo kitchen. So the uh, women's committee would partner up with consumer guests and consumer guests was very much uh, active at the time to convince Canadian women to use gas stoves and products associated with the cooking with gas. So they would actually have these spaces called the Blue Flame Rooms throughout Canada, which would be community spaces that women's organizations could rent out, uh, actually not rent out, they could actually borrow for free in order to organize culinary events. So the art of cooking would take place for uh, the duration of an entire week in the Blue Flame, Flame Room in Toronto, and it would include about three, uh, three cooking demonstra- demonstrations um, every day with different recipes. It would result in a cookbook. All these events were sold out and many, many Canadians even today remember attending or hearing about those, uh, those events. So there were very much collaborations between museums and uh, commercial enterprises outside of museums. So you kind of already alluded to this with um, how you say the woman directing the design of these kitchens was kind of this rare opportunity to um, or force these museum workers or mm-hmm. curators to make space for them. But um, what other ways did Art of Cooking, and to you too, Susie, about Woman House, how are these kind of a rare opportunity for these women artists or women committees to demonstrate their intellectual or cultural prowess? Well, well, yeah, you an, you answer, Arena. I think <laughs> no, no, I think it's ahead. more <laughs> about you. <laughs> uh, well, I'll start quickly and then I'll I'll give you the uh, I'll give you the microphone. Uh, so I think uh, in, in in the case of the women's committees, they were bringing inside museums uh, calling types of knowledge that were unfamiliar or unnatural to <laughs> to use awards that I think we're going to discuss later in museums. And uh, the culinary knowledge was produced uh, by these women in terms of the production of recipes, the planning of uh, culinary events. So in many ways, they, uh, many visitors who would actually come to the AGO, for example, would know first about women's work with foods and they would know about the content of the institution. So uh, these women actually demonstrate, if we look historically, that museums were highly messy spaces that had multiple functions for uh, audiences in Toronto. And Woman House? Well, in the case of Woman House, it was a direct critique of that kind of thing. I mean, I think that they would, I don't know that they were aware of um, the work that was happening in Toronto around the museum, but this was certainly a way of kind of taking art outside of an art context altogether and putting it into a house instead, like resituating it. So it was taking art out of a gallery, out of a white box and kind of um, putting it into a domestic space very directly. Mm-hmm. And I, I even think about how um, you talked about them using or being involved with the electric wiring or the, the plumbing and like the, the quote unquote man uh, work that goes into building spaces and how that's very uncharacteristic of what that would have been demanded of them. 
So I think part of this, uh, from the pedagogical viewpoint of the two professors, uh, was to help initiate these women to make a serious art practice and to actually get involved with their hands and to learn how to use tools and to spend hours and hours in the space creating these works. And that was one of the goals of the program, was to help the women kind of strengthen themselves in that way. Yeah, actually, I remember, uh, could you... I remember reading this on the website. Could you expand on this? How um, in the original essay by the professors, they talk about how women artists spend a lot of time reflecting on their art, but not really making the art or maybe planning in their heads, but not actually given the opportunity to create it. So can you talk about that? I think in that era, there were just so few women showing. And one of the reasons that uh, Chicago and Shapiro started this program was because I think in their own careers they were struggling a lot to gain recognition and they made a real effort to go and create an archive of artworks that had been made throughout history by women that were unknown. They were interested in discussing with women their own personal experiences and struggles as artists and even to think thinking about the studio in a different way and that it didn't need to even necessarily be in a, an industrial space, that there are all kinds of ways of working. And so there, there, was, well, there was that going on. And so you, we talked about how um, visitors were kind of welcome to explore the space very physically, maybe like squeeze the eggs, whatever they wanted, but um, who were these spaces created in mind for? I know that the first day of the exhibition, they were only allowing women in for the first day and then the exhibition was up for a month and the general public came and it was very well received at the time I think they had about 10,000 visitors and Time magazine did a piece about it and two documentaries were made and various intellectuals came Um, I know Gloria Steinem visited at the time so it was very well received and I think the audience was one that was supposed to be quite broad and to bring attention to the work. And Irina, um, with the Art of Cooking uh, demonstrations, who were those for? Um, were they women wishing to kind of expand their domestic skill set? Or, yeah, who were, who were the ones in attendance? So generally, the like, judging based on the, the types of recipes and the types of communication, the, the intended audience would have been the kind of the middle class, white, suburban and urban housewives, but also housewives who are also uh, transitioning into the public space. The, 90s, the, 90s, the 50s and the 60s were a time of intense change, the post-war years, intense change for women's relation with uh, the public sphere. So uh, a, lot of this, a lot of these recipes were intended for women who still wanted to cook really well for their families or to entertain, but who were also challenged by the new pressures of time management that are dictated by the domestic and um, public presence of, of these women. Interestingly enough, especially with James Baird, uh, we see specific uh, advertisements of this art of cooking events also for men because James Baird was, in many ways, being uh, the first male celebrity chef. He kind of legitimized the idea of cooking for men. So actually you start to see a lot of men who would have never, ever gone to a cooking class run by home economists in Toronto. They come and they learn how to cook. And even the idea of a cooking class for, for men starts to become 
uh, more legitimized in Toronto around that time. And I would dare to argue that it is uh, because uh, somebody like James Baird would come to Toronto and would perform his uh, his culinary skills on the stage. So uh, there is a little bit of kind of disconnect between who we might assume the audience to be and actually who the audience becomes in this uh, in the 1960s. Yeah, especially with uh, words like gourmet or cultivated mm-hmm. or um, mm-hmm. I, I feel like they're very exclusive and um, mm-hmm. they kind of self-select who would have been in attendance. But I think actually let's go back up what you talked about how James Beard legitimizing the male home cook. I thought that was super interesting because back then wouldn't have been I, I, I thought that cooking was only professionally done by men professionally yes but actually in the 60s and in the, the 60s is a time when uh, men are confidently entering the kitchen and there's quite a there's quite some very interesting uh, articles in playboy magazine playboy had a very uh, active culinary section <laughs> So there's quite a big, yeah, there's some very good literature about the fact that the culinary content of Playboy has started to work and legitimize uh, the male, uh, male domestic chef as a potential identity for, uh, for men. So it wouldn't have been, there were multiple, I think, multiple forces that were working around the same time James Baird on one side you have somebody like uh, right, you have a, a publication like Playboy you also have the, uh, more uh, chefs becoming present through different restaurants that were opening uh, at the time they start to actually legitimize the presence of men in and definitely as you said earlier gourmet in many ways and I hope we'll be able to talk later about this is a despite the fact that it's gendered it I find that gourmet actually allowed more and more men to be comfortable with uh, the practice of cooking. So, mm. yeah, <laughs> I have a lot of feelings about all of that. <laughs> Go for it. I'll, I'll have, have a question after that. Okay. Um, I yeah. I mean, I think that's all true. It's just it's so interesting to hear about because I. I I really think in terms of performance when it comes to cooking and how mm-hmm. there is a kind of reward when you perform mm-hmm. and you create a really grand meal or you do something mm-hmm. special. And so for James Beard to kind of be an influence on that kind of performative high-end cooking, it's very different than the kind of day-to-day labor that goes into cooking in the kitchen mm-hmm. day after day for a family, mm-hmm. three meals, all of the shopping involved, and how boring and mundane that work mm-hmm. really is most of the time. Um, and you and I, Coral, were just talking about Instagram meals that are made by mm-hmm. millennials now who mm-hmm. are creating meals and then photographing them to put them on Instagram but aren't necessarily even eating them, that it's really mm-hmm. just a performance. Um, so there's tension, and I, I think one thing Woman House did was really kind of bring an eye to, to labor, to domestic labor, not just in the kitchen, but throughout the whole house, which is unpaid labor and unrecognized labor. Yeah, I was going to yeah. ask actually about the um, intended versus actual uh, audience reception for Woman House. Um, you say the first day it was open to just women, um, and then it kind of expanded to a much larger audience than they even expected. I mean, so how has the reception kind of evolved over time now that it's even being experienced via um, you know the internet I think there's a great appreciation for it now and it's being recognized in a way that 
it ought to be. But for years, you know, there was a backlash after the 1970s and the 80s and the 90s. And I think that, you know, feminist art was largely forgotten and institutions didn't give it the credit it was deserved. And so that's one reason why so much of the artwork from Woman House is gone and there really is only a digital archive left. Um, there is the fantastic dollhouse that Miriam Shapiro created for Woman House that is at the Smithsonian and it travels for exhibitions sometimes and you can see that but that is pretty much it and then the other thing that's remarkable is a documentary made by Joanna Dimitricus called Woman House which uh, is about an hour long I believe and you can view it if you can get it through a university or purchase it and it's it's the the best way to experience Woman House. Um, so we talked a bit about how gourmet was kind of a, an exclusive moniker. Um, do you feel like Woman House being that it was produced by largely middle, middle upper class women, uh, artists that were white, or did that create any kind of exclusionaryism <laughs> around <laughs> well, exclusion around It was the definitely art an artwork of its time. You know, it's reflective of the concerns of the women and the demographic that attended CalArts at the time, which you write was white. Um, it was not as upper middle class as you'd think. I, I've heard a couple people speak about how there are a lot of working class women involved in the program who had jobs and that it was hard for them to fulfill the 25 hours they needed to do uh, in Woman House, like working and creating these installations. So, But I think the aesthetic of the house, which is a large, white, very bourgeois kind of mansion, speaks to like European tastes and the ambitions of women and housewives. <laughs> um, and the dining room in particular is a very grand, very embellished meal that's, um, that's sculptural and that uh, looks like a Thanksgiving maybe meal with wine glasses. And a lot of the kind of food I would imagine that would have, would have been um, displayed or promoted at Toronto, in Toronto with uh, Arena's references. Yeah, this is the first time there's actually a visual component to uh, my radio show. So, um, <laughs> listeners, if you want to see the images, it's womanhouse.net, right? It's womanhouse.net, yeah. yeah. Okay, so let's actually get right into gourmet, um, the terms cultivated, natural, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Irina, can you kick us off? Yeah, before I do that, actually, I, I wanted to, if I can talk a little bit about uh, Susie's comments on gourmet, and I fully... I fully, fully agree with what you said, and it's and when I when I look at gourmet in the 1960s, I find that it's I find that it's very messy. It's actually messier than I I thought it would be before I started this research, and it's messy for a variety of reasons. First of all, because it creates a series of absences, as you very very well put it. It 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 pretty much hides the labor, and something else that happens with gourmet uh, cooking, which uh, observe the entrance of more and more male chefs is that it, it changes uh, who can be a culinary celebrity before, and I'm, I'm primarily talking about Canada, I suspect that in the U.S. things would be very similar. So before the 1950s in Canada, culinary celebrities uh, were actually home economists and women who were uh, very public with their culinary knowledge by being employed by big food companies. And they would, do, they would do radio shows, they would do cooking demonstrations. So in many ways, Gourmet started to hide those women as being uh, no, culinary knowledge for, or the, kind of the receptacles of culinary knowledge or the producers of culinary knowledge in Canada. 
But then gourmet is also interesting to me because it's um, there's a way in which gourmet was also co-opted by women to actually state that there is pleasure in their domestic labor. So you find a lot of uh, cookbooks and a lot of uh, publications and a lot of conversations between women who uh, co-opt elements of gourmet or whatever they consider to be gourmet in order to fight that uh, labor and that uh, the tediousness of doing domestic work, and which, which for, for me was a very contradictory in terms of how I think about gourmet as being this kind of colonizing discourse, but at the same time, at the ground levels, it allowed women to, to express the pleasures that they find in cooking alongside the drudgery and the difficulty. So how... We talk a bit about how gourmet was this uh, showing pleasure in cooking, but how about the woman's, or like cultivating taste, I think I want to get more at. And we can talk about like the quote-unquote unnatural versus natural woman, Susie. Yeah, um, well, the idea of natural is complicated, right? And uh, I think you asked me some questions about the performances that happened at Woman House and this idea of natural. And... Uh, the whole idea of performing gender is is very interesting, and I think that there wasn't a lot of discussion around that at the time. Um, and during these performances, various kinds of tropes around femininity were examined through these um, short performance pieces. But um, now we speak of gender perform- performance much more readily. It's uh, something that has been written about and discussed a lot. So the idea of natural might be kind of situated in that. And in terms of there being a DNA (laughs) related to femaleness, I I don't think anybody believes that anymore. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Irina, you use the words natural and cultivated in the very same sentence, which um, Susie and I were kind of laughing at because um, we do think of them as synonymously uh, just in language, but they're very, very different. Um, Natural is not... You know, cultivate is something you have to work at. So can you talk about a bit about how um, taste was something that had to be taught? Yes. So just to just to make it clear, I don't actually use those words myself. It's actually a quote from Ooh, okay. a scholar that I'm actually con- uh, arguing against. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yes. Yeah, so just I just wanted to... I just Good clarification. To yeah. <laughs> a bit of clarification. Yeah, I don't want uh, to assume the wording of uh, one of my one of my colleagues. But I actually been since you asked the question about natural and kind of natural and taste and cultivated, I've actually been thinking a lot about uh, ideas of natu- naturalization. So um, there's there's obviously a process of naturalization that happens through the types of cooking that the women's committees are doing at the uh, at the AGO and. I just wanted to also talk a little bit about who these women were because I haven't because I, I, I assume this I mean I'm sure that these women are very different from the women that you are talking about Susie because these women are uh, upper class uh, white women who belong to a very privileged class in uh, in Toronto so when they enter the museum they actually bring in a lot of the assumptions and a lot of the kind of the taste cultures that uh, correspond to their social belonging. What I find interesting in terms of how they uh, 
they talk about gourmet and they perform gourmet in very different ways. So gourmet used as a discourse to attract audiences, which is very much related to high cuisine, very good quality ingredients, the using of new foreign exotic ingredients. It's very different from actually how gourmet plays out in the recipes that they cook. Uh, so in many ways, I find that the recipes are in many ways uh, unnaturalizing what has been naturalized, uh, naturalized, naturalized as gourmet because they have to adhere to what was available for Canadians. So, for example, you find a lot of canned goods uh, that would never have been accepted by somebody like James Baird in his own cooking. So you start to see in many ways a transformation of what was naturalized as gourmet through uh, the realities of cooking for Canadian middle-class uh, housewives. I just realized that we've been talking for a really long time, so we're going to take a short break, and then when we get back, Susie, we're going to talk a bit about um, some of the performances in Woman House. This program is brought to you by Jewel Sous-Vide. My name is Katie Mosman-Wadler. I'm the executive director of HRN and a real-life Jewel user. I use Jewel to help me host the most delicious dinner parties. When you cook with Jewel, there's zero guesswork. So steak, chicken, seafood, turkey, vegetables, and eggs all come out exactly the way you like them. The Paired app is super intuitive and has a great visual dentist guide. Jewel is awesome for prepping many perfect portions, making it easy to cook for a crowd, and it's hands-free so you can focus on entertaining while Jewel does the work. And pro tip, Jewel is also great for travel. I throw mine in my suitcase if I'm headed to a rental house with any kind of uncertain kitchen. From perfect steak to juicy, tender Thanksgiving turkey, Jewel makes the best food you've ever tasted. Just be sure to save some room for mini jars of pumpkin pie. Jewel, perfect food every time. To get yours, visit chefsteps.com slash jewel and use code HRN, as in Heritage Radio Network, to get $15 off for a limited time. That's chefsteps.com slash J-O-U-L-E, code HRN. And we're back. This is Meant to be Eaten. I'm your host, Coralie. And I'm speaking with two guests today, Susie Spence and Irina Milahake. And I'm just going to pass it off to you, Susie. Um, can you talk a bit about the performances in Woman House and how that demonstrates the, this tension between the natural versus unnatural woman? So there were several performances that were created uh, and developed from the consciousness-raising sessions that the women had together, uh, where they did a lot of role-playing to kind of get at you know, uh, things that had confronted them as, as women. And the one, there are two that you can watch on the website, actually, um, but one of them is called Waiting, and it's performed by Faith Wilding, and she still actually performs it sometimes. But she traces the stages of life from birth through death uh, as a passive kind of waiting 
person, as a human, uh, through the stages of femininity. And it's, it's very poetic and moving. And then um, there's another called Cock and Cunt Play, which was uh, performed by two women. One of them, um, they, they have these like ridiculous genitals that they're each holding. And the one is performing uh, a f- female persona, and the other is performing a male persona. And it's a husband and wife argue- arguing over who will do the dishes. Um, it's really... <laughs> hilarious actually but also you know a bit tragic and so I mean the idea of natural it's it's a difficult thing to address and I know that you Coral are interested in this generally in this radio program and so I think specific questions to me about natural (laughs) would be easier to answer just because I I see this around food I mean I understand the relationship to food and it's it's interesting to me how in the 1970s at the same time as this gourmet food movement in the 60s and the 70s was being introduced to women also was the concept of natural food and I know that there were co-ops in the 70s there was one near me where I lived and so there was also this idea that food would not be presented uh, through a corporate means right which I kind of associate natural with lack of of corporate intrusion and that's the best case scenario in my view definitely my interest just lies in that anytime we do use the word natural or we see it as marketing copy it's usually very unnatural how it was sourced or how it was produced or even what was needed to be done to it to make it seem natural um so yeah Irina could you talk a bit we, we talked about um how these demonstrations uh, showed the woman's cultivated taste or how they should naturally uh, cook this well. Could you talk about um, yeah, the, the more performative aspects of cooking? Uh, the more performative aspects of yeah, cooking. Yeah, so going back more to James Beard's performances. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, let me think here. So, there's a way in which um, so I spend a lot of time, because in this article, what I'm also trying to, well, I hope I'm doing it, but at least I'm trying to, to think about the, the way in which recipes are uh, developed and they circulate. So I spend a lot of time actually looking at the media coverage of these events, and I was lucky because these events, as I said, were very important in Toronto at the time, so they received a lot of media coverage. So I paid a lot of attention to how... Um, the different media outlets, primarily newspapers, were talking about these chefs. And James Baird was, especially James Baird, I think he received uh, probably 80% of the coverage uh, of these events uh, was received by James Baird. And he's also looked at as, a, uh, as an artist. He's talked about as being on a stage. Uh, there's a lot of um, attention paid to his gestures that he, that the gestures in which he tosses food around, the way in which he speaks. So he's very much imagined by his audience as, uh, as, a, as a performer, or at least by the media, by the different media reporters, uh, reporters as a performance, uh, which is very different from how uh, female chefs are being um, represented primarily through uh, what they know, rather than how they perform publicly. Definitely. So that was a major, I would say, a major distinction, a gender-based distinction that I noticed in the reporting about uh, different chefs. 
yeah that that was exactly what i was trying to get at with the um the unnatural nature of mm-hmm. the performative or james beard's demonstrations and that um something that should seem so seamless or so easy to introduce to the home is actually kind of expanded mm-hmm. or magnified made larger than life by james beard in these museum spaces so um yeah can you talk about the kind of we were talking about the performative nature of making meals every day and we see this in woman house and can you i guess we haven't really gotten into it so can we talk a little more about it Susie? about making meals mm-hmm. i mean they were not making meals um, yeah but like the, mm-hmm. the extra breasts um mm-hmm. the kitchen spaces mm-hmm. and what is it exactly that you're asking sure how yeah. this was a way to address the the drudgery or like the the more labor sure yeah. sure yeah Sorry. Um, So I know that in the kitchen there were drawers that could be opened up and inside of them were postcards of exotic places. So Mm -hmm. um, as if like a woman working in that space would want to have a little secret spot she could peer into and imagine her life beyond the kitchen which I think is such a, a lovely That's, thing. Yeah. I don't, I don't, I've never seen any photographs of this part of the installation, but it definitely speaks to that. Yeah. That's really heartbreaking, it's but beautiful. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I, I think this actually ties it a perfect way to wrap it up is um, what Irina's essay is called the recipes is culinary communication, how these recipes kind of act as um, economic or cultural signifiers or just, they're more a testament to someone's taste or maybe their their aims. Um, so, Irina, could you kind of tie back to Susie's postcards here? Oh, um, well, I will try. I'm not, <laughs> not being familiar Fast with lives. the postcards as uh, as text, but but I can I can say that recipes, uh, the way in which I I looked at recipes as spaces where we, we notice all these negotiations that happen between natural, unnatural, cultivated and, and different kind of different different repertoires of knowledge. So for example, these recipes and are ideal spaces to understand the kind of the ideology of James Baird and the ideologies of these women because they are actually talking to each other through letters. So you actually see how James Baird is trying to push against the use of specific ingredients that are not gourmet, according to his ideology. For example, uh, a, a broiler chicken. He, there is an entire, uh, a huge conversation about why he doesn't want to use a commercially, kind of a industrially produced, uh, manufactured type of chicken, as opposed to a chicken that is raised in somebody's uh, somebody's backyard. So you see a lot of. Uh, go a lot of back and forth between uh, different ideologies. So in my case, these recipes are ideal sites to actually uh, look at the negotiations that happen between women and men in the culinary domain in the formation of gourmet ideologies and discourses in the 1960s. I'm not sure that answers the question, but that's <laughs> that's that's the first place where my mind went. No, that's totally it. And I think, um, I can't stop thinking about these postcards. I, I think it speaks so much to how we use cookbooks today and that it's not necessarily um, a guide to how to cook, but sometimes it's just like a travelogue, right? We just enter to inhabit this cook space um, or you mm-hmm. inhabit the celebrity's mind or take a trip to Thailand or Japan just for a little bit. Um, mm-hmm. but yeah, thank you so much for both or to both of you for joining me. Um, Irina from Toronto and Susie here with me in the studio. Thank you so much. <laughs> it was really fun. It's such a great subject. 
Yeah, um, so this is Meant to Be Eaten on Heritage Radio Network. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.